So Elon Musk decided in all his wisdom that he would try and uh, negotiate peace or at least offer his opinions on how peace should be achieved in Ukraine. He thought that the Ukrainians should cede Crimea forever, that they should hold independent referenda, new ones in those four territories Russia illegally annexed on Friday, or at least officially did so, and that Ukraine would remain neutral, uh, which is essentially everything that Russia wants and allows Moscow to clutch victory from what is the cause of uh, its current disaster. We heard today that Russian troops abandoned a key Ukrainian city in the east so quickly that they left bodies of their comrades in the streets. It's a reminder of just how bad things are going in Ukraine for Russia right now as they struggle to hang on to even the four regions they illegally annexed last week. Well, joining me now is Dmitry Alperovich. He is the chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a think tank in Washington, and back in December was one of the few pundits to say Putin had already made up his mind to invade Ukraine in January or February. What does he think of the war now? Welcome to the show. Glad to be with you, Ben. So we fast forward now uh, about eight and a half months or so, and um, I can't remember a worse month for a major military than what we've seen happen to Russia over the last uh, 30 days or so. How do you see it? Well, it has been a cascade of failures. And obviously, first and foremost, we have to give the credit to the Ukrainian uh, forces who have done incredibly well, both in strategic planning for these offensives the execution has been spectacular. You know, you have to remember that Ukrainians were not uh, well prepared for conduct of offensive operations. They've been focused on defense for the last 30 years, in particular since 2014. It's been really uh, since before the, the fall of the Soviet Union, when the Ukrainian forces were trying to conduct complicated combined arms maneuver operations. And the fact that they were able to do that so admirably, first in the Kharkiv region, uh, in the north of the country a few weeks ago, and what's now going on in the south, in the Kherson region, is really remarkable. They're getting uh, aided and abetted, of course, by uh, Western intelligence, particularly United States intelligence. Uh, we're able to provide them, we now know, uh, very precise intelligence on the location of Russian forces, their strength, their morale issues, so that they're able to uh, execute their attacks in a very targeted manner against the weakest points of the front um, that the Russians are defending. You know, the bigger problem that the Russians are facing is really the political interference from Putin, where he is micromanaging this war and not in a good way. Uh, it really has uh, the flashbacks of World War II and Hitler micromanaging his military. And of course, we know how that ended, uh, thankfully, for the Germans uh, in that conflict. But um, here you have Putin insisting on maximalist goals for his military, goals that they're not able to execute, insisting on them, trying to keep Kherson, trying to keep the Donbass, in fact, conquer more of the Donbass territory that he doesn't yet hold. And they just don't have the forces to do so. And as a result, he's spreading them thin and uh, weakening the entire front line where the Ukrainians are now making progress in the north, they're making progress in the east, they're making progress in the south, precisely because of... Uh, the incompetence with which this war has been waged. One thing that's been striking, I guess, if, if you pay attention to what the tone of the usually quite friendly media in Moscow has been, is this sudden shift to being fairly critical, at least by their standards, uh, of, of the war effort. What kind of impact is that having, do you think? Well, this decision by Putin to mobilize forces, to call up uh, 300,000, perhaps even more, troops to the front, we know why he delayed it, because it is wildly unpopular. The war, really, for the Russian public began two weeks ago when he called for this mobilization, because until then, 
there were people that were fighting, of course, in, in Ukraine, but these were professional soldiers for the most part, people that signed up to fight for money, and mostly from minorities and uh, various ethnic regions around Russia that uh, did not include the elites, did not include people from major cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg. And that started to change with this mobilization where everyone in Russia who is not extremely well connected to, to the regime and now has to fear that they would be mobilized, sent to the front in Ukraine, and potentially uh, get killed or maimed there. And that is changing, I think, significantly the support, not just for the war, but support for Putin personally, support for his policies and his regime. Now, I want to be careful. This is, does not mean that we're about to have a popular uprising in Russia. The brutal authoritarian apparatus that Putin has built over the last two decades is way too strong to allow for any sort of popular uprising just yet. But you may have, uh, you know, sometime in the future, perhaps probably not anytime soon, but perhaps potentially in the coming years, um, a uh, palace coup where some of the people that are watching Putin drive Russia into the ground, destroy its military, destroy its economic productivity, uh, decide that it's time for a change. Um, you know, I want to, again, be very careful that this is not... Uh, an indication that something is about to happen. This is not an indication that there's a high probability of that even happening. Uh, but the fact that it's now possible is a direct result of the way that this war was conducted, the fact that Putin is really out of options. He has turned this war of choice, which is exactly what this was up until he called for mobilization of forces, into a war of necessity now for his own regime, not necessarily for Russia, uh, Russia can certainly lose this war and survive as a country, uh, but uh, I'm very doubtful that Putin can survive losing in Ukraine. What would be the advantage? I mean, other than just lashing out and proving he could use them, once he takes that step, you would think he's crossed a line that would be very difficult to walk. I, I just don't see the tactical advantage of using the nukes. There must be another way out of this for him that doesn't involve something so absolutely um, unacceptable, I would say. Well, we have to break this down, right? So there are different ways that you can use nuclear weapons. Of course, in the worst-case scenario, you have the use of strategic nuclear weapons against the West, against Europe, against America. Um, that uh, would absolutely result in a nuclear conflict and um, uh, absolute devastation for uh, tens of millions of people on this planet. Uh, one step down from that is, is the use of a nuclear weapon in Ukraine itself, um, against still strategic targets, so potentially capital city of Kiev or some other major population center, uh, clearly a war crime that he would commit in order to try to, in his mind, uh, suppress the resistance and get the Ukrainians to relent. Um, unclear what the Western response would be uh, in that scenario. Uh, would we go to war over the use of a nuclear weapon in strategic fashion? Perhaps, but... Um, uh, we've never articulated that. And of course, we have not extended, we, the United States, have not extended our nuclear umbrella, our nuclear protection to Ukraine. Um, he could also use a tactical nuclear weapon, which means a low yield explosion, uh, akin more to the use of kinetic weapons, but going nuclear uh, against the force concentration um, in Ukraine. So potentially against the military target using nuclear weapons, still crossing a major taboo. Uh, but nevertheless, not necessarily uh, committing perhaps a war crime uh, as, as would be an attack against civilian population. And lastly, would be to use a tactical nuclear weapon, a low yield explosion, but not actually use it against any target. 
So do it in a remote place, potentially the Black Sea, uh, maybe even something symbolic like Snake Island, this, this famous island that's been uh, fought over um, during the early stages of this war, first captured by the Russians. Um, if he's going to resort to nuclear weapon, I think that's going to be his first choice. And again, in that situation, it's unclear. You're absolutely right. It's unclear what he gains because I don't think he's going to get the Ukrainians to give up just because they observe a nuclear explosion in a remote area. Uh, it may get uh, the Western alliance, uh, both um, the United States and Europeans, very, very nervous, or, uh, as rightly they should be. Uh, anytime a nuclear weapon is, is used, but I don't think that we will cut off aid to Ukraine because of that. But in his mind, he may think that this is a way to sort of get the, the West to kowtow to his demands and force Ukrainians to the table. All of those possibilities are thankfully still unlikely, but the likelihood of using nuclear weapons is rising by the day because he's losing uh, so precipitously in Ukraine. And if he's going to do it, I think he's going to start with this demonstration type of uh, explosion. Dmitry Alparovich, thank you so much once again. Thanks for having me.